Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. This week in Revolt Black News, our futures in New York City and Atlanta start to look very different. Now listen, call it what you want. From paper chases to mayoral races, somebody's gonna get elected in the end, y'all. So we, as a collective, need to activate and come together to make sure that on the local level, we demand some damn good mayors. Now listen, this is not all about the presidency, but let's just take Joe Biden for example. Y'all remember who was one of the first and most vocal people to endorse him? That's right, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. And that just goes to show the incredible power of local leadership. And now that she's decided not to run for re-election, I have a question, Atlanta. What are you gonna demand from your new mayoral candidates? And listen, here in New York City, the block is hot. We have a mayoral primary in a month. Are we activated? Listen, y'all, it's time to shake up the timelines. And y'all, as we should say, we got to say it local and be vocal. Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. Now, with the news that Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is not going to run for re-election, we want to discuss what this means for the Black community. As y'all know, the impact of Atlanta goes far beyond just the city itself. We saw it with the 2020 general election and in terms of the entire culture. So listen, say less, right? So here to break it all down for us, we have former Atlanta mayoral candidate and attorney, Mr. Michael Sterling. Also with us, Atlanta City Councilman and Tuck Brown. Welcome both of you brothers to the show. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, now let's talk about it. Keisha Lance Bottom, uh, she has been serving as Atlanta's mayor since the year 2017. Uh, you know, a very, very high profile for this sister. She's the sixth African-American to hold the position and the second black woman specifically on this job. Tell us how'd she do? I'll start with you, Mike. I think there's good news and bad news for Mayor Bottoms, uh, as there is for any uh, elected official. Uh, Mayor Bottoms deserves credit for balancing the city's budget year after year, even during the COVID crisis. Uh, she deserves credit for making sure individuals uh, who were in the city's jail uh, didn't stay in there just because they couldn't, they didn't have the money, they were too poor to make bond. I think Mayor Bottoms has had some really, really good moments uh, as mayor, uh, but I also think that you have to uh, look at uh, uh, where the city is. Is the city safer, healthier? Uh, more prosperous than it was when she took office. And I think she's got to take, you know, some of the responsibility for a 60% increase in murders. She said in her inaugural address, she was going to create a $1 billion equity and affordability plan. We really haven't seen that come to fruition. She said she was going to get the city to a triple A credit rating. We haven't seen that come to fruition. She said in her inaugural address that every child entering kindergarten would have a college savings plan. We haven't seen that come to fruition. So look, there are some good high moments for her where she's done exceptionally well. But I think in terms of some of the execution of some of the uh, plans and uh, things that she wanted to uh, accomplish uh, in office, some of the lofty goals she set, she leaves those with, a, with an incomplete. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms was the first uh, person I've ever voted for in my life. Um, you know, and she's someone that I also worked on her mayoral campaign um, when she was running to be elected. 
Um, and coming into council and serving for the last two years, you know, I can understand why we've had some of the experiences uh, that as a city we have under her leadership. Uh, you know, I, 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 I texted her the other day and I told her, I said, listen, you know, um, we may not have agreed on everything, but, you know, at the end of the day, I appreciate your service to this city. And, and it is what it is. At this point, we need to begin looking forward um, to um, this upcoming mayoral race and uh, the candidates, um, including myself, that are considering to get into the race and, and see who's going to be best fit to move Atlanta forward. I like the, how you buried the lead there, considering getting into the race. We'll get to that in one second. Mike Sterling, I do want to ask you first, though, as these <laughs> candidates, uh, pr right, proposed candidates start rolling out names, what's at stake uh, for Atlanta and specifically the black community in Atlanta in terms of this next mayor election? I don't, I don't think it's hyperbole, Ebony, to say that this is probably going to be one of the most important elections for city of Atlanta mayor. Uh, you've got a real movement in terms of Buckhead, which houses a lot of the businesses, a lot of the corporations that provide a lot of the framework and, and, uh, and tax base for the city of Atlanta, making a real movement to try to pull out of the city because uh, they're so shocked by the enormous amount of murders, shootings, uh, and crime that's happening in the city. As Atlanta is sort of reeling uh, from uh, from, from some of the, the safety issues and some of the, the racial tensions. All of these things are going to be at stake. This is probably going to be one of the most consequential elections uh, for the city of Atlanta in the last 40 years. Okay, so it sounds like the stakes couldn't be any higher. With that said, Antonio, as you kind of already teased here, you did retweet an article from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution saying that you were considering a mayoral run for yourself. What can you tell us about it? Where are you on that consideration at this point? And what would be attractive to you to get into this extremely high-stakes election? Yeah, you know, many people speak about, you know, how Atlanta is this Wakanda you know, and that we're this black Mecca of the South. And the reality is we can never be that when we have innocent black people in this city struggling to survive every day, having to choose between putting food on their table or paying their rent. The reality is until we start addressing the root of these problems, we will not truly see real change, generational change that needs to happen so Atlanta could truly live up to what it's meant to be, you know? And that's the reason why I chose to consider getting into this mayoral race because after being on council for two years and, and, and seeing the, the political dynamics at play, people that have been in this political space for decades choose, you know, um, corporations and and developers and other folks over the interests of the people, it's truly um, made me realize that we, we have to change things in this city. Like any other Atlanta resident, whether you're in Buckhead or Bankhead, you deserve to, you know, be at the table and, and be a part of the conversation. Michael, I'm intrigued by Antonio's you know, kind of pointing out of this, a bit of a tale of two Atlanta, even though Atlanta was a very key part of the state of Georgia turning blue in November for Joe Biden, and of course, putting two Democrat senators in the U.S. Senate, uh, we're still reminded of the suppression tactics that are at play by Governor Kemp and so many others within the state. Uh, we just saw a very restrictive, suppressive voting rights bill that really literally keeps people from getting food and water while standing in line to vote 
uh, for the likes of people that look like you, me, Mayor Keisha, Antonio, uh, and yourself, Mike. How do you reconcile that? How do people remain faithful that the type of change both of you brothers are working to achieve in Atlanta is still possible? You know, Ebony, it's not anything new that every time we take two or three steps forward, someone tries to take us a step back. That is the history that has always existed, whether it was in the you know civil rights times, um, you know, uh, you know, are, are moving forward. Every time we got a seat on the corporate board, then someone tried to take take us a step back. When affirmative action got passed, someone tried to take us a step back. Right in 2005, African Americans weren't using absentee uh, ballots. Right, uh, African Americans not in large part. Young people weren't using absentee ballots uh, in large percentages. The individuals who were using them were mostly conservative, were mostly uh, older individuals, Republicans, people who tended to vote with the Republicans. So this is a clear power grab. We got to do it again, right? They changed the voting laws on us again, right? If in, in the absence of preemptive federal law that restricts what Georgia's able to do, we've got to adapt again. We've got to educate individuals again. And I think that Georgia is motivated to do that. I think this uh, oppressive uh, voting bill is going to backfire on conservatives, uh, uh, who, who, on the conservatives who push this. I think it's going to backfire because I think it's going to motivate the base even further uh, of Democrats uh, and, and, and like-minded conservatives who don't think it's appropriate because it isn't just Democrats who are being affected by this. It's conservatives too. The, the surest way to lose the game is to step out of the game or to quit the game. We've got to stay in there and we've got to stay, we've got to stay motivated. You talked about restoring uh, a bit of federal oversight around prohibiting this type of, 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 of restrictive, suppressive action, uh, making sure that we have adequate representation of our interests and community on the U.S. Supreme Court. Through, uh, you know, this wouldn't have even been possible, as we know in this conversation, but for the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. Antonio, I want to come back to you and go back to this hypothetical uh, you gave us of you potentially running for mayor, mayor in this city of Atlanta. Can you explain maybe one of your potential policies under a Mayor Antonio Brown that would bring about the type of economic prosperity that would allow Atlanta to live up to the ideals that we know it can be? You know, something that right now, uh, I recently passed legislation unanimously on council to begin looking at what it would take to bring in-house our infrastructure jobs and begin to create a workforce development program where we can hire from within the community, train them, um, you know, even if we need to work with the unions, bring the unions in, work with our residents, train them and prepare them for careers. Um, this is something that I think is, is incredibly important for the future of Atlanta, especially post-pandemic. Uh, the unemployment rate is 12.5%. Um, 7.5% of those folks um, are women and minorities uh, that are underemployed in this city. So collectively, you have an unemployment rate and an underemployment rate of close to almost 20% where you have folks that are, are struggling to survive in this city because the reality is when you talk about affordable housing when you when you talk about sustainability in this city if people are not working they are either on unemployment or they're out committing crime or they're out here trying to figure out how do they get to a place where they can sustain themselves so at the end of the day jobs is critical 
to the future of Atlanta. And we need to create a lot of them so that we can put our residents back to work. So my primary focus is if I choose to get in this race and run for mayor. In all sincerity, uh, Antonio, Michael, uh, both of you brothers demonstrating exceptional leadership for the city of Atlanta and the culture at large. And listen, here at Revolt Black News, Atlanta holds a very dear and special place in our hearts, and we welcome you both back to the show very soon. Listen, up next, we have this week's headlines. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Here are this week's headlines. Now we're gonna start with an update in the case of Derek Chauvin. Of course, the Minnesota judge has found aggravating factors in the murder of brother George Floyd. Now with the upcoming sentencing of Chauvin, this is very likely to increase his years of sentence. And the three men involved in the 2020 killing of Ahmaud Arbery, they've all pleaded not guilty to federal hate crime charges. Now listen, the killing of Aubrey was filmed via a camera phone as he was jogging in a Georgia neighborhood last year. The three men are also still facing state murder charges as well. And on the heels of the diversity backlash from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, NBC has announced that they will not air the 2022 Golden Globe Awards. NBC put out a statement that says this, we continue to believe that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is committed to meaningful reform. However, change of this magnitude takes time and work. And we feel strongly that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association needs time to do it right. NBC will not air the 2022 Golden Globes. Now over in vaccine news, the FDA is now allowing emergency use of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccination for 12 to 15 year olds. Here's Francis Collins, the director of the National Institute of Health, with more on the vaccination of children and how it can be a path back to normalcy. Let's take a look. Oh, yes, kids 12 to 15, uh, time to roll up your sleeves. And I think a lot of them are gonna wanna do that, including my 14 year old granddaughter who's already making an appointment because this is a chance uh, to have those high schoolers and some middle schoolers uh, get themselves in a place where it's safe to go back to school, to go to sleepovers, to play in sports, all the things that they've been deprived of for the last year. And in international news, India continues to be severely impacted by COVID-19. Recently, there have been over 23 million reported cases and 250,000 deaths. Let's take a look. The fires at cremation grounds are constantly burning as bodies of those who've died from COVID-19 keep coming. This one in Uttar Pradesh, one of the states worst hit by India's second wave. We used to get up to 10 bodies a day. Now it has risen to 40 or 50 a day. And fighting continues in the Middle East with Israelis and Palestinians. This is being cited as the biggest escalation of the conflict since the summer of 2014. Now, the historical tensions were recently sparked over an East Jerusalem neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah. Now, look, y'all, it's far too deep and complicated for me to try to unpack here just in this headline segment. So we here at Revolt Black News simply wish prayers, resolution, and de-escalation and peace 
for all involved. And listen, y'all, do yourselves a favor and read up on the very complicated and deep tensions and history in the region. Now, back here in the States, White House Chief Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci has announced that it might be time to relax indoor mask usage. Let's look. As we get lower and lower, we're going to pull back on the restrictions. Right now, you don't need to wear a mask if you're together in a family or with friends with other vaccinated people. Certainly, you don't need to. On, when you go outside, almost any circumstance, you don't need to wear a mask, except if you're in a very, very crowded place. So we need to get vaccinated. And the more people that get vaccinated, interestingly, the closer and closer we'll get to a pulling back on all of those restrictions. Dr. Fauci also said that it's quite possible that mask usage could become seasonal. Let's take a look. I think people have gotten used to the fact that wearing masks, clearly, if you look at the data, diminishes respiratory diseases. We've had practically a non-existent flu season. So it is conceivable that as we go on a year or two or more from now, that during certain seasonal periods, mm -hmm. when you have respiratory borne viruses like the flu, people might actually elect to wear masks to diminish the likelihood that you'll spread these respiratory borne diseases. And Gavin Newsom has announced that there is a possibility for a one-time $600 stimulus check that up to two thirds of California residents could qualify for. Now this proposal would also include $5 billion for residents behind in rent to pay back their landlords at 100%. And President Biden has announced a new round of diverse judicial nominees. Let's take a look. Given the timing of this, this wave happening right now, that there, at least for the most part, these judges have been waiting for Biden to become president in order to step down so that Biden could replace them and not Donald Trump. Well, Trump had a huge effect on the courts. Um, in his four years in office, he put more than 230 federal judges onto the bench. And these are lifetime appointments. So that's done. If you want to do some comparison here, you know, Obama in his first four years got 175 judges. Now, y'all know how critical I've been over President Obama's slow appointment on the federal judiciary. And it allowed for Trump to put more federal judiciaries on the bench in four years than President Obama put in eight. Trump actually put over 200 of them, and none of them, exactly none of them, were black. Now, listen, we like what Joe Biden is doing right here. He's actually putting a lot of diverse nominees up, including three black women at the appellate level. We love to see it. But what we love even more is to see their confirmations. We'll stay tuned. And lastly, over in sports news, Michael Jordan is set to induct the late NBA great Kobe Bryant into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame this weekend. The ceremony takes place over two days and will be held in Massachusetts. We, of course, want to salute always the Black Mamba for an iconic, never ever to be duplicated career. And of course, we want to extend our prayers and our hearts to Vanessa and the family. All right, now that's it for this week's headlines. Up next, Rochelle Ritchie talks black capitalism with Mandy Bowman from Official Black Wall Street and Lynn P. Smith from By the Block. We've got much more Revolt Black News after this.
All right, welcome back, y'all. Now, listen, we can't say too much about it right now, but at some point, probably in a month or so, here at Revolt Black News, we're going to unite with some big names, some folks y'all know and love. And we're going to do so to hold white corporations accountable as a part of a grander conversation so that Black-owned businesses can operate at a level that truly reflects our talent and potential. And like I said, I can't talk about it too much right now. But in the meantime, our girl, Rochelle Ritchie, is going to be having a very important conversation about Black capitalism. What's going on, everybody? I'm Rochelle Ritchie back here on Revolt Black News to lead a very important conversation about Black capitalism and how it can lead to our equity and prosperity. Joining me in conversation is founder and CEO of the official Black Wall Street, Mandy Bowman, and president, CEO, and founder of By the Block, Lynn P. Smith. Thank you both for joining me today. Well, Mandy, I first want to start with you. You gave a very important and insightful TED Talk where you talked about how the Black dollar only circulates in our communities for six hours. Now, when you compare that to the Jewish community where it's 20 days and the Asian community where it's a month, it's really uh, incredible and shocking. And a lot of people may not be familiar with uh, Black Wall Street and how the Black dollar moved through that community. Why don't you explain to us how important uh, it was for that Black dollar in that community and how that inspired you to start the official Black Wall Street? Absolutely. Um, this was probably one of the most startling facts I found when I first began OBWS. Um, so while a dollar circulates in our community now for only about six hours, over a century ago, a dollar would circulate for almost a year before it would leave the community. Um, as we all know, in the early 1900s, um, Jim Crow laws were at large and segregation as well. So during this time, many of us had no choice but to create our own, um, our own businesses, our own systems, um, and create a, a self-sufficient neighborhood. Um, many times we were barred from working at or patronizing businesses that were owned by white men and women um, in the same way. So as a result, we you know, went ahead and created our own community full of Black-owned businesses, um, everything from Black-owned movie theaters to Black-owned pharmacies that were right in Greenwood. And it was one of the most prosperous communities in Black history. And when I look around and I saw that, and growing up in Brooklyn, New York, um, my neighborhood went through so many changes, especially with gentrification. I noticed that a lot of the businesses in our community were not Black-owned and that many of the Black-owned businesses uh, weren't receiving the same support that they may have received um, back in Black Wall Street days when we had no choice but to support our own. Because now we're competing with the Starbuckses and the, the Coca-Colas and the Targets. So even with us having a $1.3 trillion spending power, I knew that we could create our own prosperous and self-sufficient community. We just, the same way that we did back then, we just need to figure out where to put our efforts. And so that was the, the major um, inspiration behind creating Official Black Wall Street, um, creating this platform that would allow us to easily identify and vet Black-owned businesses that we could support all around the country and in, in other countries around the world. Excellent. So I want to turn now um, to capitalism. We know that capitalism has historically uh, been negative uh, for the Black community, especially when we think about lower income communities. And we know that slavery was the foundation of capitalism, and then you couple that with redlining and white flight and Black flight and all these different issues. How has capitalism uh, negatively impacted the Black community? And then furthermore, how do we fix it? Is there a way out of that? 
capitalism is 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 a tool. Capitalism is a tool, and and we have to treat it as such. Um, it's used as a tool to either it, historically it has been used as a tool to be able to um, to ostracize us or or to keep us to keep us to leave us out. Um, but we can we can certainly use that tool to be able to help our community grow. Um, you know, all of these 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 uh, these 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 isms are tools that we can use. So I, I would really say that you know use the use the tool to collect individually as well as collectively. Um, collectively is the important part because that's where that that's where our power lies. We our power lies in us grouping our you know grouping our interests collectively, whether it be human capital, whether it be you know social capital, whether it be you know, financial capital, pooling all of those resources together and using capitalism as that tool to be able to empower us. So, um, but, but use it as a tool, the tool that it, that it is. And Mandy, you can weigh on, in on this question as well. You know, again, thinking about capitalism and how that's negatively impacted the Black community. Is there a way that the Black community can use capitalism to its benefit, even though it's been so de detrimental in the past? Yeah, I mean, like you said, capitalism has hurt our community and it has, you know, increased the wealth gap. Um, still going. Um, the way that I see it, um, with all the different things that, or the the different outcomes that, you know, capitalism capitalism has led to in our community, from like you said, redlining, um, mass incarceration, employment, um, those are all systemic. Um, I think in order for us to see actual change, it, it has to be political and, and governmental. But I agree in, in that um, I think the way that we move around it and, and get it to work for us, um, it is a long game of, of gaining wealth and then trying to redistribute it um, back into our communities, whether it be through program, through creating um, organizations and, and foundations where we can you know, bring that wealth back into our community. Um, but I think we, because we live in a capitalist society, we have to play the game in order to get to that place. And now, you know, Mandy, I'm going to stick with you on this question as well before I go back to Lynn. But the opposite, obviously, of capitalism is socialism. And we know that Gen Z and, and a large portion of millennials are uh, in favor of socialism. But then when you look at, you know, the, the hip hop community, when you look at entertainment and celebrities, some of them have sort of straddled the fence of supporting capitalism while also pushing socialist ideas. Can we do both? I think we have to. Um, I, I think we have to just because of the, the country that we live in. I mean, this country was built on capitalism. It runs on capitalism. So I'm of the opinion that we have to kind of play the game and then use it to our benefit in order to get to where we want to go. I mean, I'm also millennial and I also gravitate towards socialism um, just because I feel like, you know, fair distribution of, of resources, whether it's housing or healthcare. Um, or education would be a major benefit to our community that has constantly been stripped of those things. Um, but again, I also understand that we live in a capitalist society. So the way that I see around it, and even the reason why I built my own um, company, Official Black Wall Street, was to find a way to bring resources back into our community or to, to continue to build and redistribute um, on our own. And then, Len, to you, when we talk about buying the block again and economic organization, uh, is there room for both uh, capitalism and socialism in doing that? Yes, there's definitely room for both. Um, you know, the U.S. practices 
capitalism or, you know, it, it operates capitalism, but practice socialism, socialism. So we can definitely do both. There are social aspects to, you know, to, to there are social projects or social um, platforms available in the U.S. Um, we just need to be able to make sure that we are clear what we're doing, when we're doing it, how we're doing it as a community. So I, I definitely think that we can use both. We use capitalism as a tool because we do have to attain the wealth and then find a way to redistribute that wealth amongst ourselves to be able to collectively grow. Mandy and Lynn, thank you so much for joining us here on Revolt Black News. This is a very insightful and very important conversation. More Revolt Black News right after this. Hey, what's going on, everyone? It's Jason Carter here hosting this week's Black Excellence in Entertainment. And joining me in this celebration is someone extremely special. She is the one, the only, you know her from the Black Girl Podcast, Miss <laughs> Bex Francois. Hello, <laughs> hello, up, hello, hello. <laughs> all good, all good. How you doing, Jason? I'm good, Bex. You're so glamorous, girl. You're so glamorous. Aww, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> of course, boo, of course. Let's get started because Lovebirds, Russell Wilson and wife, Sierra, recently signed a mm. first look production deal with Amazon Studios. Now this duo, will produce and develop scripted films and series with their production company, Why Not You? And you know what, Bex? Why not them? They are like couples goals. To be honest, I'm so sick of their love and their happiness and their great hair, but really, I'm, I'm, I'm truly here for it. <laughs> How do you feel? Absolutely. I think um, spouses probably make the best working partners. Um, we've seen it happen with Will and Jada, Beyonce and Jay-Z, Viola Davis and her husband, and, you know, even The Rock and his ex-wife, Dani, who's been his manager since 2008 even amidst him mm -hmm. remarrying. So, and that just goes to show that true partnership beyond um, relationship titles of husband and wife and boyfriend and girlfriend, true partnership begets true success. Um, and they've been catching W's independently and with each other for X amount of years now, and there's no doubt in my mind that they'll continue to catch this, you know, more W's as this powerhouse producing partnership <laughs> together. Checks on checks on checks. And you know what, you know, it's, it's, also indicative of the talent that Sierra has. And it's really nice to see Sierra in this new role of like, hey, let me show the older generation who grew up with goodies, who grew up with, with um, the evolution, mm. all her first albums. Now you have Gen Z millennials that mm -hmm. are like, okay, I'm feeling Sierra. What else does she have for us? And she's right. like, bam, here you go. Hashtag, you're welcome. Well, also the NFL star also took right. a Twitter back, so shout out to his little baller sister, Anna Wilson on her NCAA mm -hmm. title with Stanford University because the Cardinals beat the Arizona Wildcats in the finals tournament over the past weekend. So look, the Wilsons are just family goals. I mean, what else can you say? From the new school, I guess this is to the old school. Bex, do you remember reading Rainbow? Of course I remember reading Rainbow. That was, that was I don't want to age myself, but I grew up on reading Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> the reading Rainbow star, LeVar Burton, is doing big things these days. This news just hit that he'll voice the AI character in the film adaptation of the Nancy Drew book series spinoff of Tom Swift. And here's where a lot of people, Bex, are getting really excited because after petitioning to be the host of Jeopardy, brother got a quarter of a million signatures, and he's in fact going to host Jeopardy in late July. And this is not a surprise to me because LeVar Burton has been educating generations for years. He is the perfect person to host Jeopardy. Like, why would he not? Absolutely. If Reading Rainbow was the summer reading assignment, 
Jeopardy is definitely the test to see if you've done your homework. <laughs> it just makes absolute <laughs> sense for LaVar Burton to graduate into this role, um, especially in the field of knowledge and education. So congratulations to him. And of course, RIP to Alex Trebek, who was hosting the show since 1984. Yes, he did. He did what needed to be done. <laughs> right. Do you remember the musical episode, Teamwork, Teamwork? Do you, remember, do you remember that episode? Everybody, everywhere, Teamwork, Teamwork, everybody <laughs> do your shit. Was that it? Oh, my God, I remember that. Oh, oh, no, it was Teamwork, Teamwork, you got to move, you got to go. It, it was oh, one of those, okay. like, early 80s. <laughs> it was incredible. Oh, see, I'm, I'm thinking of the Barney one. We'll take it. Well, from one generation to the next, Bex mini mogul Marseille Martin is set to head a scripted podcast reading of the young adult novel, Free to Fall. Now, Martin is producing and starring in the series coming from the company Scripty. Can we just take a moment, and everyone watching at home, take a moment to really, like, celebrate Marseille Martin, how she is living her best life and making me rethink my life choices because she is super successful, super creative, probably super rich at such a young age, but the content she delivers and what she stands for, showing and being an example of what black excellence is, is truly otherworldly. Love me some Marseille. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, mini mogul Marseille Martin needs to be changed to mega mogul Marseille Martin. I think she's definitely earned the title, even regardless of how young that she is. Um, she has definitely committed thoroughly to no black pain projects, um, and it's been evidence in everything that she's decided to pick up and the way she's decided to number her steps in her own personal production uh, career, and she definitely deserves all of the applause. Are you a Broadway fan? I'm a huge Broadway fan. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought so because Broadway is coming back in the fall and Michael Jackson, the great and late Michael Jackson, is set to get a musical MJ in December. Now, the musical will focus on his 1992 Dangerous Tour rehearsal. Mm -hmm. God, that album is, even mm -hmm. now, even, even close to 30 years later, that album still slaps. Bex, are you ready for this? Are, mm -hmm. are me and you going to, am I going to have to fly to New York and me and you have a Michael Jackson <laughs> Broadway date? Is that what we're doing? Oh, that, that definitely needs to happen. I, I have found myself as of late coincidentally finding old uh, candid behind the scenes photos and videos of Michael Jackson from when he was in the Jackson 5 all the way up until him rehearsing for his This Is It tour. Um, yeah. Just fall with him all over again. He was a beautiful, beautiful entertainer. Um, not to mention the Dangerous World Tour, which was four million people in attendance um, across its span. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was a behemoth of a moment in MJ's career, and not to mention it also supported the album, which features one of my favorite MJ's tracks, Remember the Time. So I cannot wait to see I'll how Broadway, which in and of itself is one of one, comes and bridges that behemoth moment of MJ's career on stage. I cannot uh, wait. <laughs> I co-sign wholeheartedly remember the time i remember the mm -hmm. world premiere on fox right after i think it was in living color or martin or the simpsons it was sunday yeah. nights on fox everyone who's black remembers sunday nights on fox mm -hmm. it was popping mm -hmm. and they premiered the full <laughs> video with iman with eddie with eddie murphy it was just uh, as you said eddie a behemoth murphy. moment and that album was such a huge undertaking for michael because he had he had bad before right so he had to mm -hmm. i mean five right. years Later, he had to come back swinging and dangerous was that. Right. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was super dangerous. So, yeah, I'm excited for this, too, as well. Bex Francois, you are a treasure and a queen, and we can't do this without you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely, doll. Up next, Ebony returns for Revolt's New York City mayoral race series with candidate Ray McGuire. So stick around. More Revolt Black News after this.
Welcome back. So now we're continuing Revolt Black News' New York City mayoral race series. And this week we have yet another candidate joining. This time he's a businessman and former executive at Citigroup. Welcome to the show, Ray McGuire. Welcome, Ray. Thank you for having me. It is great to be with you. Absolutely. Now, Ray, as a very long time and successful businessman in the city, uh, we're curious here at Revolt Black News, what is your, your take on capitalism in general and black capitalism specifically? So let me let me deal with black capitalism, capitalism in specific. I'm for conscious capitalism, to be very clear. But the way I think about black capitalism, especially in New York City and other parts of the country as well, is that we have been outside for so long that when they give us crumbs, they want us to feel full. I'm not interested in the crumbs. Matter of fact, I'm not interested in the cake. I'm interested in us owning the bakeries. And along these lines, I am remembrant of Martin Luther King Jr.'s comments, observations. He says, what good, it, what, do, what good does it do me to earn the right to sit at the lunch counter if I can't afford a hamburger? So I'm interested in affording the hamburger clearly and maintaining those rights, which today are threatened. But I want to make sure we own the restaurants, which is where we need to go. And that's where we need to be. And that's the direction in which I want to lead New York City, especially for those people who look like me. Indeed. Now, what do you say, Ray, to those uh, in the black community that feel that capitalism in general uh, is just a threat to, to civil rights? Well, I don't think I don't I do not think that capitalism is a threat to civil rights. I think the lack of access to capital is a threat. But remember, there's no social justice without economic justice. So I'm going to start first with economic justice, making certain that we participate in and as we say, prosperity, it ought to be shared prosperity. And the more shared prosperity that we enjoy, the better off we can make certain that when it comes to social justice, that we advance the cause of social justice. Now, speaking about that economic prosperity, Ray, what types of policies do New Yorkers and black New Yorkers in particular have to look forward to under your administration that will get us some of that economic prosperity? So let me give you an example here. Uh, what the facts show is that in 2020, year 2020, New York City spent $22.5 billion, $22.5 billion. MWBEs got $1.9 billion, less than 5%. And 82%, 8 out of the 10 MWBEs got zero. And so what you can look forward to under my administration is being intentional here. I'm going to have a deputy mayor for small businesses, MWBE businesses, where I'll be intentional as to how the allocations from the city go. And that means I'm going to break up the contracts. I'm going to be, I'm going to focus on this. And the example that I can give you is one with which you probably have a high degree of familiarity and the community has a high degree of familiarity. And that is what Maynard Jackson did in Atlanta. He was intentional. We can grow around Atlanta Hartsville unless we get some folks in here who get contracts, not just responding to one RFP, but long-term, they can build the businesses. Uh, I want to talk about policing, Ray. Uh, I don't have to tell you uh, the long and storied and detailed history of the level of brutality that uh, NYPD and other law enforcement agencies in our city have dealt uh, trauma and deadly consequences to black and brown people. Uh, New York, though, has recently become really one of the first, uh, maybe even the first cities in our country to end qualified immunity, at least at the city council level. 
In addition to that type of progress, what can we expect uh, from your administration around righting the, the cruel wrongs of police brutality as it relates to black and brown communities? You know, I call this respect, accountability, and proportionality. And what do I mean by that? We have too many of the serial abusers in law enforcement who've not been held accountable for using acts that are overly aggressive. As has been said by others, if the only thing you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When it comes to black and brown communities, it looks like a sledgehammer. And there's no accountability. Under my administration, we're going to have the following. A structural change. We're going to have a deputy mayor for public safety. Day-to-day -day management of the NYPD. We're going to have a who is connected to the community and also connected to the day-to-day -day management of the NYPD. I'm going to have a chain of command accountability where more than one or one or more officers involved in an overly aggressive act, the entire chain of command gets held accountable. Given that four to five of the 10 calls that go into 911 have to do with mental health issues, I'm gonna create a mental health, a, an emergency social services core that sets, in the, sets within the NYPD that we can deploy with or ahead of the NYPD to deal with those, those who are mentally ill, who pose a threat to themselves and to our communities. And I'm going to make certain that the CCRB has full investigative authority, meaning rather than take 48 days to review video, video cam footage, I'm going to do it in 48 hours. And they will have a complete access to the file. They make a recommendation to the commissioner. And based on that commissioner's response, I'm going to be ultimately held accountable. And I need to prevent this by investing in our communities. The, the, the cure of violence, the violence interrupters like Erica Ford, the the community centers i need to give us summer jobs keeps out of trouble i had a summer job and i will return to police to community policing you know we had some frequency of of a few officers who knew the community whom the community knew so you have that respect you need to restore the respect which has been breached because of the overly aggressive policing i want the police as a 6'4 200 pound black man i want them to protect me and not to profile me and my overall prescription is focused on just that Indeed, indeed. Now, um, speaking of the community, you have been endorsed, Ray, by some real heavy hitters uh, within the community, uh, including the chairman of our network, uh, Mr. Sean Love Combs, Jay-Z, Nas. What do you think are the benefits of that type of large cultural endorsement at that level? Um, and then what do you say to those that say, well, you know, that's the black billionaire class supporting uh, you know, that type of candidate? What does it mean for, you know, the everyday uh, black and brown citizen of New York? So first of all, you know, I have so much respect and honor for those endorsements. And why did they endorse? Because, you know, the arc of our stories are similar. We come up the hard way. I come up in the neighborhood, so do they. And they know what it's like to have, to go up against conscious and unconscious bias. They know what it's like to go fight to survive. They know what it's like to, to climb the ladder and they've extended the ladder. Each one of them to a person has extended that ladder. And I've attempted to do the same thing. So they recognize and appreciate the, the climb that I've had to make to get to where I was. And so I think each of them would, would say, yes, they are where they are through hard work and a lot of perseverance and taking a lot of hard hits, but they survived and they're helping others come up the same kind of ladders that they came up to. So there's a still respect for and appreciation, full appreciation for the foundation. Any uh, resources where people can find out more about your candidacy, websites you want to direct people to? Sure. You can go to rayformayor.com, rayformayor.com, or for those who are social media tuned, go to at rayformayor. 
Ray McGuire, listen, here at Revolt Black News, we want to wish you the very best in your candidacy uh, as this primary gets closer and closer, and we thank you for your time. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. All right, y'all. Now, listen, we hope that this has been informative, bringing you this New York City mayoral race series over the past few months and letting you hear directly from the candidates themselves. Now, to bring it all home, you're going to see a website below. There, you can browse the name of all the New York City mayoral candidates, even the ones that we did not report on specifically here at Revolt Black News. So listen, as we get closer and closer to this June primary, as always, we're going to stay on top of all of this and report the news to you as it develops. But in the meantime, remember y'all, stay local, but most importantly, stay vocal. For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.